Welcome to A Day in the Why, where I talk with fascinating folks about the jobs they've held, the things they've learned, and how those fit in with their values and goals. You may just learn something, but I hope you'll at least laugh along with us as we dive into the mistakes we've made, the lessons we've learned, and the secrets behind the career curtain. Welcome to the latest episode of A Day in the Why. Today's guest is Brian Garvey, a local designer, musician, and all-around really nice guy. <laughs> I met Brian a few years ago while at Scripps Networks. Brian was a designer, and I believe at the time I was running a team in ad operations. It wasn't until I changed roles and led a front engineering team that we had a lot of contact. Brian and I shared a lot of ups and downs at Scripps, motorcycles, and most impactfully, our growth into UX design as designers and leaders. I really enjoyed watching him navigate his career, but something has always struck me about him. Something strange, something rather different than most design professionals. By night, Brian is the frontman for a rock and roll band, The Coveralls. The Coveralls. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. Good to be here. We'll get into your backstory, your career arc in a little bit, but in this episode, I'd love to try to call out how your having had kind of a dual track of music and design has changed how things have gone versus your only having followed a single path. Is that cool? Yeah. Could you sketch out really quick a background of who you are and what you've done in the design world over the years? Yeah, so I had a degree in journalism. Um, I really liked the writing and the interviewing part of it, but I wasn't really keen on the profession. And uh, I took took a break off of that for a little while and decided I wanted to go back to school for design. I had the idea that I wanted to start a, a publication focused on local music. So I thought that those are two things that would make a ton of money. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, for some reason, I, you know, I, I, I talked to a local publisher and he said, well, you're going to need a graphic designer. I said, well, no, I, I've, I've got kind of that stuff. I could probably do that. He's like, no, 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 it, there's some stuff to that. So my brilliant plan was to go to school for design, learn that. So then I one fewer person that I would have to worry about. And I so could make the you were going to go to college for design so you could, uh, design, uh, be the graphic designer on a fanzine. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, well, I essentially tried to drop in uh, to the UT program second half of the sophomore year when you're supposed to um, to pass portfolio review, and I did not. <laughs> but uh, there's something about it. I just, you know, I just want to keep sticking with it. I got a lot of grief from the uh, professors over there because I didn't do a lot of visual exploration like they wanted to see. I would solve the logo or whatever it was, book cover, and they're like, no, okay, well, let's show me 10 more and just like in school show your work (laughs) right well and i was like well i solved it already i'm I'm more interested in in some of these other problems right and whether it was getting involved with bringing video into things or or sound-based uh media or eventually web stuff the program really wasn't geared towards that and uh, but i found that experience building much more interesting and so that's how i started into it as soon as I graduated, uh, two weeks later, my second kid was born, and yeah, I started started uh, pounding the pavement. And um, Scripps was starting to ramp up some of their uh, online stuff, and I, I got on over there. So, well, when I very first started, there was still a lot of it was combined, where you do the visual design, some of the code, and and everything. And they were just then starting to split off the front end department, and then right after that, forming a UX group. Mm-hmm. And kind of saw what they were doing, and I didn't know there was a name for that at the time and I was like yeah that's that's more of you know what I'm into designing that that piece of it and yeah that's how I got started into it when I got out of design I got out primarily because at the time I felt it really was only visual design and after having done that for a number of years it wasn't challenging anymore and when I got back into design it was gleeful that there was so much more dimension so many other things to it oh yeah yeah and that it was so pervasive, uh, it was becoming a factor in a lot of product development, whereas it used to be kind of just an afterthought. Oh, yeah, and this thing that we made, I guess we should make it look good. Right. Yeah, The uh, Mike Montero has an article, the, the Sad Cushion of Design, that's kind of about that, where you make a chair and then it's not comfortable. It's like, well, let's just add a cushion to it. Mm-hmm. Right. It should be from the beginning. What's the intent and all that, right? Yeah, it's interesting because there's, so there's, there's so many debates still. That's one of my favorite things is to... To follow the whatever is currently getting mixed up on Twitter, and uh, there's still a lot of talk about design and where it, where it goes. But you're right. I mean, there is there is 
so many aspects of it and is ingrained in a lot of different ways. I mean, even the way it's shifted where I'm at now, the younger designers are, are sort of like, we want more impact, we want more impact. And then one of the one of our seniors left not too long ago, and he said, you don't realize how much impact you do have. You know, when I started, we weren't even invited to the meetings. Y'all are key to the meetings now. And you see that in, in product design and everything now, yeah. So you mentioned where you are now. Where, where are you now? So I'm currently at uh, Radio Systems Corporation, a CDNR portfolio company. Yeah, so it's a it's a, a parent brand for or a parent company for a lot of pet product brands, uh, Pet Safe, Invisible Fence, Sport Dog, Kurgo. And what do you do there? I lead up the whole user experience effort, uh, everything from you know websites and the apps, but also uh, a lot of the product, anything that has a physical product, create the hardware. So anything that has a an interface or some sort of interaction to it. We work with engineers on figuring out the best way to do that. And then you would also work on the, the software elements of those physical products yes, if there and were. Any, and any software. So there's a lot of Internet of Things uh, projects going on and a lot of investment in that. So. What does what your organization size look like on, on the design side there? <sighs> oh, just the design? Well, let's say design or design research. Uh, okay. So at one point, I had both the uh, UX team and the, the research team. And there was a uh, fourteen people. Okay, and are they fairly well integrated with dev teams? So you actually have sort of product teams, or is it a pretty pretty staunch split? Yeah, well, right now we're going through the uh, matrix phase, right? So I think that you see organizations go back and forth between the, the matrix versus product team or mm-hmm. pods, or as they called it at one point back in the scripts, we went through that phase there. Oh yeah, and yeah, right now we're we're really matrix, so we're shared resource across all the brands uh, you and, and several others I've, I've known have worked there and it's been really encouraging to hear how much more design and preliminary research has played into the product development <laughs> yeah. over the years. yeah well it's, it's interesting uh, because when i started they didn't even have the title of ux designer there there was just a, a couple people that wanted to, to bring that in uh first on the website and when i was having a struggles working with the team there, the development team. And so I put together some presentations and we said, okay, this, this is, this is a, let's try this as a way to approach things because they're used to the whole, make something in Photoshop, lob it over the wall, right? You end up with, you know, a CSS code base. that's all full of important, you know, decorations and trying to overcome bootstrap and, and all these things. And you've got a thousand different shades of, of black, right? So. Which leads to really good Product consistency. Oh, consistency. Yeah, you don't ever get to do anything new. You're just working on uh, CSS technical debt, which is odd. It took me a year just to get us from pictures of buttons to CSS buttons. It was pretty wild. But so as I was given that presentation of, of a different way of, of approaching things, uh, one of the the people in the senior staff that was over the, the e-commerce sites came to me and said, hey, can you apply this to our products? Because our products are struggling with usability. I was like, yeah, that's where all this came from. <laughs> Uh, it's weird to see that kind of go back full circle. And so first started on some of that crossover, which was a, uh, they had some failed attempts at some IoT products. So we tried a new product team approach, even though we were in sort of different departments and uh, had one of the first successful, commercially successful IoT products for the company. And so it kind of went from there. And because it had never existed at the company, the reason I was saying that the title name existed was that we were able to sort of tell them what it was. So in some ways, this this little like engineering first company has really been able to embrace a lot of the the customer centric uh, research and design first approach that a lot of bigger places talk about are still struggling with. Um, it's really really fortunate to, to to be there. So for better or worse, we've you know we continue to define what UX is uh, for the people. So yeah, it's interesting because some people a lot of times when new category managers come in so who's over you know the pet doors or whatever uh, i've never worked at a place that had a ux team would that be like a product manager or a product marketing manager or yeah it's it's a blend of like a portfolio manager um they do a lot of product manager type stuff but it, it's really a struggle on the when they have an iot product in the mix because they don't have that software background so that's been an additional challenge we actually have a dedicated product manager for all of our iot stuff but uh, they do a lot of make you know historically they're the ones that told the engineers how it what the light should do and, and things like that so okay. close but yeah not having a dedicated team like that they're used to saying okay I think the product should just do this and we're like well no 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 you know here's how we approach it and at first it's a real struggle uh, but then after a while they they 
you know, they really appreciate it because that's just a whole load off of them. They don't have to guess. They're not personally responsible anymore. They're responsible for reviewing data that has been gathered right. and making an informed decision, which is a lot less pressure and a lot more repeatable. Yeah, exactly right. Um, that's actually a really well, good way to put it. I need to, I need to write that down. Because <laughs> uh, that's exactly what we try to get across. Because you know, initially they feel like it's just someone else trying to tell them what to do. Because in that position, they've got senior executives telling them what to do. They've got the engineering supply chain, everybody telling them what they can and can't do. And so, you know, where we've really made a lot of headway is working and convincing with the people that, that were there to kind of help them exactly with those those data decisions. Because there's never a right or wrong answer. There's just trade-offs, right? It always depends. It, yes. And I, we've, I've tried to strike that from the vocabulary anytime we're talking with the business. <laughs> but it is such a challenge. I don't, I don't like to hear that. Oh, there's a reason it's a cliche, though. Right? Now let's paint a picture of that, that parallel track as a yeah. musician, as a bandmate, and as a businessman. Okay. Yeah, so picked up the bass when I was maybe 13. Thought I was going to play keyboard. One day I was just listening to an album and picked up this thing in the background. I was like, what the heck is that? Like, that guy's got to be bored out of his mind. But if that wasn't there, you know, doing the same thing over and over. It'd all fall apart. It would all fall apart. Uh, figured out that was the bass guitar. Um, yeah, figured out how to play that. If you play bass or drums, then you're, you're pretty much in a band from the time you pick it up. Because <laughs> there, there's just, you know, not enough of them. A lot more these days, but but yeah. So I always played. And I always really liked playing live. I never. I, I, I love getting in a studio and recording. But I had friends that that's all they wanted to do was to sit at home and make you know tapes and stuff. And I would just rather be playing out. And still to this day, I just love that live experience of feeding off of what the crowd is, reading the crowd, and and adjusting accordingly. There's just you know something really great to that. So I was in you know some original bands, and one of them broke up in the studio. And we've been sort of getting after it for a while, trying to quote, you know, make something. I, I talked to the, you know, so the lead singer sort of split off. And I talked to the three with remaining guys, and I said, "Hey, this '80s thing's kind of coming around. Let's just learn some cover tunes and play for fun, and then maybe in a year figure out what we want to do." What about what time frame would this have been? This was close to 20 years ago. Okay. So expected it to last a year, and we're still together. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we, we did it because we wanted to have fun, but we also wanted to, again, I always approach it to, you know, create an experience. You know, we, we even started off with, because we caught a lot of flack at the time, because a lot of people weren't doing just covers, but, you know, that we weren't there to change our life, we're just there to change your night. You know, after a while, it, it, we, you know, adopted this motto that we're not in the crowd getting business, we're in the crowd keeping business, because we ran into some issues as we started picking up and getting more, you know, more paid gigs, people would try to hire us out to remote places. And expect the big crowds we have downtown to follow mm -hmm. them, whatever. So, you know, we're not like a touring act that's going to bring in anything. But if you got people hanging out, we're going to play the songs and I keep them there. And, uh, and, and really buying stuff. You know, from the business perspective, I always, you know, gigs, the ones we're, we're choosing and, and how we're approaching when we're playing, is really tough to get paid as a musician, especially on that scene. But if you pay attention to what the people paying you, how they're making their money, and you can maximize that, then they're happy to give you more, right? And that's what we've been able to do. We, we, we draw on the people. They spend a lot of money having a good time. Club owners are happy to pay us. Okay, so now you've recovered from the whole fan bank thing because you've you've become successful as a band by analyzing psychometrics and gaming the system. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you, just, you, you focus on uh, creating a commerce-friendly environment, feeling so that venue goers... Uh, want to go buy drinks and buy food and stick around and have a good time. Yeah. So it's a combination of how you, how you talk, how you are on stage, the, the effort you're kind of putting into it to encourage people to want to, you know, stay and be a part of that and, you know, buy more drinks. You know, the longer they stay and do that, of course, the happier the club owners are. It's, it's you know, it's a win-win-win, obviously. More people, we have more fun. If people are having a good time, that's what they came there to do in the first place. And, of course, the, that's what the owner, it's the only reason they bought, you know, entertainment in the first place was to try to, to get people and keep them and make money off those sales, so... So as the coveralls, I imagine you have to be able to cover just about anything under the sun. How, yeah. how do you handle that breadth of work? You mean, how do you remember all those different types of songs? Yeah. I, I wondered that sometimes because I have trouble remembering, you know, some of the dumbest things. And a lot of times I can't even remember how a song starts, even though we've played it forever. As soon as someone says, it's an A, you know, idiot. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And then it just unlocks it. It's, it's interesting because it's really made me think a lot about how memory works because... I think I learned visually. I see things as songs as patterns, which is a lot like what we do in our daily work. We have to be recognized thinking in systems and, Pattern and recognizing patterns, yeah. right? And and that's kind of how I approach the songs. That plays into a lot of how 
I'm able to access all those things. I don't know how the other guys actually do it. I haven't really talked to them about it. That's interesting. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting because a lot of the songs will end up falling out because there's some quirky thing to it that you have to be really, really on top of and, and wrote. So it's higher maintenance. Yeah, it's higher maintenance, which is not what you want when you're trying to balance all the things you're doing while managing a live performance. Right? Especially whether you're at a bar or at a wedding or whatever, you're really, again, reading off of everybody and, and watching them sort of rise and fall with their energy, as well as all the technical stuff you have going on. I also run sound for us when we do our private gigs. So there's a lot to, to go on. So you don't want to have to think about you know, those songs too much. Or you have little mnemonic devices or, or some other things that you know to, hey, bring up right beforehand that, again, helps unlock it for everybody. Hey, remember, third verse is weird. Well, it's a memory right. pointer. Yes. Like, you don't have to remember everything. You just remember the, the key that unlocks that yeah. bit, of, bit of memory in your brain. Yeah, it's it's wild how often that's, that's, that's been the case where I just can't remember a song at all. And then someone says one thing and then you just got it and it rolls. And I've seen that before. Like somebody else will blank on, because I don't sing all the songs, you know, somebody else will blank and they're like, how does this even start? Rolling down the back, you know, and suddenly he's like, I got it. And he sings the whole song. That, that's kind of how we manage that. You know, we, it was interesting when we started off, we were just doing rock stuff. And then someone asked us to play a wedding that I had worked with. And then somebody else asked us to play a wedding. And then pretty soon people were like, hey, can you play some Motown? And we're like, well, we know Ozzy Osbourne. And then we kind of pride ourselves. Wait, Ozzy's not that. Motown? <laughs> o- Ozzy is not. Uh, so it was a grandmother asking about it. She wanted something she could dance to. And apparently sure. she struggled with Crazy Train. And uh, <laughs> thought, well, that's kind of rock and roll of us. But we should probably. She seemed really nice. I would love for her to dance and have a good time. So let's learn a Motown song, even though it seemed like the furthest thing we could pull off. So that's another thing. We had to adapt all these different things to what we could do and actually make sound right. And in a lot of way we approach, you know, like these songs and it's been really interesting because there's been points where people asked if we had a, a CD back when that was still kind of a thing. And I thought that was the strangest thing. It's like, you know, turn on the radio. <laughs> you don't need a right. CD from us. It's all the songs you'll hear elsewhere. But what I kind of came to realize is that moment, yeah, live moment is kind of what they like about it. And I, I would like to think that we'll look at a song, figure out what is it about that song that really is awesome. And make sure we get that, right? As opposed to just making sure we nail the chords or so if we need to change the ending or cut out certain parts to make it work better live, we do that. You know, we're constantly testing uh, and iterating. We'll, we'll try a new song. Uh, so at our last gig, actually, the first time we tried Post Malone, Circles, which we talked about for a long time, but it was just kind of out of what we normally do. And, you know, it went really well. And there were some parts that, didn't go well and overall it was great we'll probably do it again but there's like okay well there's that middle part that did not work like we thought it would let's tweak this now let's try some keypads instead or so do you basically uh, capture that you know put it in a in a parking lot and then when you get together to to practice you you pull it out and be like okay if we're gonna do this again this is what we need to to really polish yeah or or we'll do you know right afterwards we'll talk about it we actually don't rehearse oh so like on the on the spot like after you you pack up yeah that's when you're kind of doing your retro Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we'll, we'll give each other the retro look in the moment, especially if somebody messes up, you know, part of it. That's yeah. the, uh, we'll be talking about that look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, and it's kind of interesting because we'll laugh sometimes. Sometimes you get really angry because you're like, you're really leaving me out to dry. I'm the only one singing right now and you're supposed to be there and you're not. But a lot of times if, if we make something, you know, some dumb error, we'll just kind of hope that somebody else in the band notices it and laughs with us. And you're like, okay, I'm going to keep going because a lot of people probably didn't notice that. It's more important to keep going. Uh, but yeah, mental note. So yeah, yeah, we, we, we do retros and all that. And I actually do approach uh, a lot of my work that way. And just as informally, honestly. Your design teamwork. Yeah. yeah, the design teamwork. So for example, recently, two of the designers were working together on the interface for a, a new uh, in-ground fence. They had some success with that. So someone, you know, we, we started applying the same pattern. I call it interaction discovery. Through the, one of the hard parts about making change at, at a company like this, which I'm really interested in how you've approached it in some of your past work that have really long product cycles. Uh, how, you know, it takes a while to get in the beginning of one and really set that up. But we have an interaction discovery where we get this list of requirements or, or we get some of the research and what the category says strategically they want to have these other features, right? Well, our interaction discovery process is we will look at each feature and figure out where it came from, right? Is this actually from an insight? Is this from a review? Is this just something we learned from the last product? Is this something the competition has we feel like we need to? Is it the industrial designer just thought it'd be cool, right? Let's understand each one of those and then sort of 
boil that down into okay, what are the basic inputs? What are the basic outputs? Right? What is the what does the system need to tell people? What do people need to do into the system? And then what is the core feedback loop? And then let's experiment with what's the best way to do that with the industrial designer or whatever. That's kind of the same thing, right? What is it about the song that works really well? Is it the rhythm? Is it an initial hook? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Is it a callback of some kind? Right. And, you know, it, it, do we need to leave space for people to do a response, call and response thing if that's it? Or is that an awkward thing and we just need to sort of minimize that part of it uh, because it didn't flow up? But yeah, exactly. What, what's the hook? Is it, is it is it the speed? Do we need to make sure that that's coming forward? Same thing. But as they're doing this discovery on, on another new automatic feeder, you know, they discovered that some of the features they didn't think had as strong of a case as some others that may have been left out. You know, what I never want is a designer to be like, hey, we need to do this because this is what people want. This is just the right thing. Um, actually, I was just reading, you know, a, a thread on Twitter today about that. You can't just come forth with the, because this is the right solution because I'm the designer. You know, don't question this. You don't know design. I'm always like, speak their language, right? That's been in any role, right? It's really important to, to speak the business language. Always know how you're contributing to the, the financial success of the company. Mm -hmm. Same thing with why you're in the bar playing the music, right? You know, speak to that. Oh, I really like, by the way, the uh, I'm not here to change your life, I'm here to change your night. Uh, <laughs> I, that's scope definition right there. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I, I've never thought about that way. That's exactly right, yeah. So I said, well, if you want to do this, we're going to put together this presentation and like kind of let them run with that. We talk about it beforehand. Like, okay, well, this isn't what's coming across. This is. Is that what you want? No, no, no. Let's take those. They present it to the business owner, get some reactions that are expected, some that are unexpected. And then right after is like, you know, we'll talk and be like, okay, how'd that go? And wait for them to say, well, we spent too much time on the on the buildup, right? We really should have gotten to it much sooner. Right. How do you read the room? Right? How do you read the crowd? And especially hard when you're kind of remote, but there's cues and there's ways to do it. A lot of times it starts with understanding what problem everyone else is trying to solve when they come into that room. And making sure you're, you know, mapping to that. In this scenario, the the room is is the internal stakeholders, not not your yep. end users, not your customers. Yeah, correct. Okay. Right. Because if you don't do that, then your end users don't get the the great solution. Because there's so many there's so many constraints that you have to navigate. And I think that there's this myth that you, you can't do things just because there's constraints, right? And that, that's what design is, is stuff in the constraints. And so we've actually had some cool victories along the way where people initially say, well, we can't do that. That that's either out of scope or that's that's not really the primary thing we're going after with this product. To be able to reframe it, like actually no, we do have time to do this. You know, talk with engineering, we talk with developers. This is doable and it actually would solve this other problem here. And this is how it's going to better position your product, which you said was the primary thing you needed to do against whatever. And here, here's how this that. decision would fulfill your goals. Right. You know, XYZ, based on our research, this is what it looks like. You still get to make the decision, but we want you to be fully informed. Right. And I think that that's, it sounds so obvious, but it really is hard to shift your brain to sort of think that way when your day to day is relying on you being a subject matter expert that is deep diving into, you know, the nuances of a Figma library, you know, even on the technical side of that, or, or really diving into how the, the customer is visualizing the system, which, you know, most people aren't doing, right? And so a lot of times I see designers go in and talk about something that seems really obvious and then get frustrated that's not obvious to everybody else because they're going there with that assumption that everyone's thinking that way, but everyone else has got those, you know, different problems to solve and we want them solving those problems. I, I want the product owner to be doing those things. I want the developer, the engineer, whoever, I want the senior executives to be doing their thing because I'm not good at those things right now or, or I can't focus on them. They've certainly beyond the scope and I like all coming together so that we can continue to do this every day. Yeah, I mean, we all need our specialties, but we've got a line behind that product vision. Right. Well, that's actually a lot of work that we've done is getting everyone to be very specific about that vision up front uh, because they are so used to saying, okay, I need to have this product because so-and-so has this product or, and, and I'll lose market share if we don't have this. That is a thing you need to happen, but that's not gonna happen unless we understand what that's really gonna do for the customer. Like one thing I've been really working on a lot lately is embracing that. It's like, I get it. You're looking at shopping studies and people will look at something with 10 bullet points and something with five bullet points and they perceive 10 bullet points as more value. But when they actually go to use it, only one or two actually matter. And if you don't get those right, you're lost. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if they buy you off the shelf, that you're only going to sell a few of them and then that's it. And that's you know really important when it comes to the, the product development because you hand something to an engineer. If those are the list of requirements, they want to do everyone 100% rock solid bulletproof. And so, you know, it's easy for projects to, to your point about scope, to get really, uh, you know, out of hand quickly because every one of those 
things branches off. And you're almost just, you know, throwing the dice to see whether or not the, the really important stuff gets in or not, or if it gets squeezed out by the far less important things. Right. And and, and for, for the dumbest reasons, too. You'll get to the end like, well, we thought we could do it. We just can't. So we're launching without this feature. You're like, right? that's the feature. It's the feature, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. It was number seven on the list, but it was it was the feature, right? And so the more we can show that evidence base up, up front and be like, primarily, this thing has to scoop cat poop without anyone touching it, right? Mm-hmm. Or this thing has got to feed meals on schedule, whether or not you're connected to the internet or not. And it's got to verify it, right? It's got to provide proof to you as a right. as an owner because you need the assurance. You need the peace of mind. Right. That, that's that's the whole, yeah. The whole value proposition is that it's taking away that anxiety of being late from work and, and, and knowing that they're taking care of. So in this case, right. the, we, the, the feature that we included, we got to was the feeding of the animal, but we, we couldn't get to the assurance. We couldn't get to the, the audit log well, feature, so, right? And it's great that you bring that up because one of the things we first discovered in actually testing, which this was still controversial, that you would you would test with a few people early on in the product process. Because when I started, they would work on it for two, three years, and then they would test with people. And molds are already done. Like there's no significant changing anything. We had this feeder, and we were testing a really rough prototype early on. And what we found is that the number one touch point for the customers was that notification that the pet's been fed. Which at the time, I think the engineers had put in meal has been dispensed. Right? It was just a well, that's what it did. And we we're trying to make things work. That's not an important thing to us. And like, well, this is the first, this is the major touch point. This is the first time they trust the product. And now they rely on that. And so we need to at least make it something nice. I mean, we're, we're telling them, we just fed their pet. Like, that's what we're doing as a company. That's all we've all signed up. That's why we love working for this brand is, to, is it's about pets and our, it's connection. We can't, we, we can't approach it like that. And at one point I was even had to say, hey, listen, I understand you're trying to just get the Wi-Fi to work and there's still bugs with it. But if it the Wi-Fi works, but people can't understand how to use it, it probably doesn't work. Right. So I need you to 50-50 these from your front-facing things. Fortunately, you know, after having built some relationships with some of these uh, devs, especially with some of the back end, they're just like, whatever. It's just got to work for me, you know. Was like, it Seth? Seth uh, uh, I think Seth Godin says people don't want a hammer; uh, they want a nail in the wall, right? Right, that, or, or, to hang something on. Yeah, yeah, right. Which veers into like that whole jobs to be done thing, which is a whole other whatever. <laughs> but but yeah, they want it to do. They they want this outcome, and that's what in the beginning it's hard, you know, when, when you're, especially when you're trying to push for that type of change because you're seen as just someone with an opinion. Oh, okay, you're the subject matter expert on this, but that's an opinion, and I have an opinion, and it's like, well, that's not it's not my opinion. <laughs> You know, I've been watching people use things for like 20 years. Like, and trust me. <laughs> well, that's the application of, of human behavioral patterns. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that that is a science, right? There, there is like that heavy science stuff side to what we do in, in UX. I think that's being seen a lot more now in one of your comments earlier, uh, whereas before it was just how's it visually presenting itself. So what would you say is the biggest challenge that you're grappling with right now? I'm not trying to paint that as a positive or a negative, just... Something that's consuming the most cycles. What are you pouring energy into these days? Yeah, what, what what's our uh, fidelity here, or how many how many how many rings out? Are we talking about? I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking uh, pure energy. Like, what's what? What do you, you know, maybe if it's horribly inefficient, you're putting all your energy in to move the to move it an inch. Or if it's you're at the tail end of a, a five year arc and it's super successful and it's almost coasting on its own, but you're still focused on it. Whatever that is. Well, I'll tell you, I've been thinking a lot, you know, recently about what what is the future of my department because so much is so much has been accomplished we, we've gotten sort of i wouldn't say we're infused ux infused by by any means like in 2018 i i took over the research department which at the time was really quantitative uh, an approach that so would just send out surveys and it was really frustrating for the ux designers because this is like this is not the questions we need to be asking it's not how we should be asking for for what we need and you would see the the larger product teams getting a little frustrated too uh because they want to know the why you know or they'd be given these charts but with these statistically significant things, but they're like, well, do I need to fix this where the power port is on this or not? Is this a problem? Is, are, are people going to be frustrated with this? Well, it's really hard to do effective synthesis from surveys, right? Right. It, it is. You, you get, and, and that's something that is eating another, you know, a lot of my philosophical cycles is this notion of, you know, there not being enough data, hard numbers in, in, in the qualitative side of things. When, you know, the more, the more I've gotten involved in, in the, you know, management side of things and in the business decisions and, and how they're being made and how we're reporting on things. Every number's made up. 
right? Everything's a guess. I can show you, you know, you can show you a, a projected sales chart. That's fake. But if I can tell you, like, hey, people are gonna, you know, really struggle with this, and I want to buy it, and they're like, well, where's your data? I'm like, well, I guess I can make you a chart that shows it. But would you believe me then? Would you believe me then? You know, and and I see, and I've tried to do that a fair amount. You know, I I put together ROI for every headcount that I was able to build. That was I can't go back and track the ROI of that really, but and it and it helps, but at the same time, it, it's a struggle to veer too far into that, and you miss really the important things of, of what you are pushing. And sometimes it can get reduced. NPS is a really good example of that. We so badly want to have this number where executives or the business or whatever will take experience. But it's know, all based on a false premise. Yeah, you know, in, in that more. example. Uh, specifically, a lot of people feel that it's not incredibly useful. The, the, the premise, recommendation. Of the, the recommendation yeah, scenario. My, my favorite is uh, Microsoft. I need you to understand that when I'm hanging out with my friends, we're not talking about my email program. Right. As a user, I want to log into the system. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so I'm, all, you know, constantly thinking about staying on the right side of that. But you know, in, in terms of thinking about where now that. We are getting full product cycles and we're, you know, kind of involved. What's the next thing to push? Because I, you know, I'm always wanting to look for that next thing to to push and address. I'm not really good into like maintenance mode. I get a lot of enjoyment from my job developing people and, and helping designers, you know, level up. So I really love that aspect of it. But they're looking for, you know, vision too. They want to, you know, keep pushing. And so with times like these where everything is so up in the air, when's the next variant going to hit and, and suddenly, you know, do something else? You know, supply chain is just knotted up for a while, right? And I know that that's the business focus. And so what are ways you can add value in that scenario? Given the, the supply chain issues and what I perceive to be some, some durability behind your products, is there a lot of thought behind how you can upgrade the software side of existing hardware analog products, given that that kind of, to a degree, skirts the supply chain issue? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you, they're, they're, you know, my boss is thinking about that a lot. You know, she, she's really trying to transform, lead a digital transformation. It's interesting. I used to say this back in Scripps days, back when you couldn't even convince people to, that we should design for mobile. This is approaching fast. And I was like, well, until it hits 50%. I'm like, it's going to fly past 50%. We're not going to be ready, you know? Remember, we, we didn't used to actually de deploy or monetize ads that went to mobile because right. they didn't figure it was a significant enough source. Right. Oh, it's only 18% now. Okay. It was like 5% <laughs> six months ago, but whatever. But yeah, but but and there's a reason for that. I mean, you know, I remember talking uh, to somebody, like maybe you, they're like, well, it doesn't matter because if someone clicks on that, they're going to go to something that's not mobile optimized because our sponsors aren't. Mm-hmm don't have mobile sites and, and things like that. So I know I kind of, you know, it's interesting. I understand that. And you know, but it's a challenge. It, it's you know, the whole thing of digital transformation is you don't, you have to recognize that you're now a tech company, even though historically, you know, you made non-technical things. And I think that that's really still a struggle to sort of, you know, when you're used to incredibly successful decades of doing one type of business to then think in terms of a digital. No, no, no. We're manufacturing. Right. right. You know. Yeah. You know, they, they see it, they recognize the need. I mean, they're really smart people running things, but it's just tough. Institutional habit is incredibly hard to to overcome. That's a lot. Of, that's a, something that I've actually spent a lot of time on, right? Is applying what we know about what we're doing, designing every day is understanding people's behavior patterns and how do we want to alter that so it fits in with their existing patterns. If it requires a significant change, being very mindful of that. Uh, it's the same thing when you're trying to push for change inside of a company. Not only do you have what the senior executives patterns and, and what their habits are, but the organization itself has habits and patterns. It's wild because you can have all the people in the room say, yeah, we should be doing this differently, but yet we're still doing it. It's fascinating. That's always really intrigued me. So org design is, is has been something that's really interesting. How do you design an organization and to kind of evolve it that way? Yeah, that, that's what's kind of eating up a lot of you know, my time now is trying to think about what that what that next you know, step is. Well, thanks for sharing that, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really happy we keep finding these connections uh, be <laughs> between your music and your and your design and org design to organizational intuition playing for crowds. So we've got a really good idea what you've done in the past and what you're doing now. I want to take a step back and figure out what early on led you here. What would you say are the most influential stepping stones in your life? Would it be like a first summer job or friends and family? What led you on the path? Yeah, it's hard, it, it's hard to pinpoint. 
Because right, I've, I've thought about this before. In this type of role, anyway, it's always hard to make like a five-year goal or five-year plan because there's all along, like I said, when I first got into it, I didn't even know it was a thing. And everything changes so often. I'll have people come up to me and say, hey, I want to get into I want to get into the yes. You know, what, what do I need to do? I'm like, well, why don't you do an expressive interest, which is a program we have at, at my current place, where you work in one department, but you can spend X amount of hours per week doing some small work and just kind of attending meetings, kind of seeing how that department operates and see if that's a role you, you'd be interested in. And inevitably, they get, you know, some people will get really frustrated. I, you know, I had one person come to me from the, the writing team. Our first meeting, she got really frustrated that I didn't have like a syllabus. Uh, do this checklist and you will be a UX professional. You're right. Right, which is the funny thing about, you know, some of these boot camps and, and, and things. I said, well, that's, you know, that's not how we work. The truth is, I could lay this out for you, but the nature of the job that you'll have if you get into this and do get that job in a year or two is going to be completely different, potentially. Or, again, may not even exist yet. Well, it's also different because what they bring to the table in terms of skills, in terms oh, of background, is completely different. So the insights that they would be able to, it's a great the point. connections they would make are completely different than those you would make. And you don't want to block that, right? You want them to bring that as well and you don't want to have something so rote and laid out that it doesn't allow them to bring that because i think that and what i love about the idea of this concept of a podcast is is that that you see people coming from different things like i you know the journalism side is for me was one of those points where i was like i love interviewing i i love getting to the, the heart and the bottom of this and then you know articulating that to others so they understand that in a distilled way but I didn't like some of the other aspects of it. And so now I find that, you know, my visual chops weren't as, as good as a lot of people, but I could interview people really well. I could, I could interview users as they were doing a usability test or whatever, which a lot of people really struggle with. And then I could write up a thing about it. That's really important. Yeah, so you should yeah, bring that background in. You know, I pointed mentioning that person that was really frustrated. She now is leading the, the UX writing department for a healthcare startup. So someone who started really frustrated and, and wanted to have this sort of curriculum and, and you know, step by step laid out, once got into the flow of, of no, here are the, the core tenets that we're sort of following. But every situation, you know, you got to be open to learning and, and, and adapting. And it, it worked out for once you embrace that mindset. And so a lot of people come to me and I'm like, I can tell right away, well, your mindset isn't really for this. And, and I kind of realized that much about myself early on that I, I was just more interested in getting to the heart of, of some of those things. So uh, well, it goes back to your early design experience, right? Right. You, you didn't want to go through 15 iterations of a, a logo to come up with a logo. You wanted to get the logo done and move on to the next thing because the purpose of a logo is to communicate a brand or to communicate a concept. Right. And, and, and that's, yeah, just one aspect of that whole thing. That's exactly right. It was that. And another key point, uh, key point for me professionally was when I went to school, when I talked to Carrie Staples about getting into the program, for some reason, she let me just drop in to that you know, second half of the semester, which is totally in over my head. It was, <laughs> it was great for me to get my butt kicked that way, but I don't know why people would do that. But one thing she said was go talk to, to Wade at DMG uh, because he's got a good eye for this kind of thing or whatever. So I took him out to lunch. And at the end of lunch, he's like, seem nice, but I'm going to tell you, you're not supposed to be in design. Hmm. And I was like, hold on. What? He's like, yeah, you should be in marketing because I hear you talk about, you know, money and and things like that. And that's you, you can make money in this, but there's going to be a lot more in money, marketing for yeah. you. Yeah, so I, you know, I actually didn't have a chance to follow up and, and to dive into, you know, his whole perspective on that because we were lunch and I was kind of shocked. One thing I didn't like is I didn't want to go back to school for a whole other thing that, you know, like I did the first time that wasn't going to be what I wanted to do. And here's this person that's supposed to be the one that, that can really assess that. But I knew at that moment that I'm supposed to be in design. I know this. Why did he say that? It has more to do with how what I was must have been saying to him. And not about where I'm at, what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, and I've, I've said this type of thing to people since. I was like, I don't, you know, you're not supposed to be in this. And and you can tell their reaction. I'd read this, I can't remember who it was now, but it was a musician who, who said that people who come to me saying like, you know, I, I love playing music and I, you know, I want to get into this. And like, I'd say, don't. It's really hard. It's really hard and most people don't make it. And so the only way to do it is if you absolutely can't do anything else and you just have a passion and, and a drive for it. So in the face of that, you shouldn't do it, don't do it. If you still have to do it, then that's almost a qualifier. It is. And again, it reshifted me from looking for, you know, what, what are other people seeing and, and, and how can I tailor it to that to be more like, well, how am I presenting this? Because obviously I, I know this is something that, that I want, even though I didn't realize that until someone said that. How am I presenting that? Right. And that one thing is really 
you know, carry me forward. But really, so like all the things I was talking about earlier about how you present to the business and everything, it has nothing to do with who you are, what your idea is, but like, what are you actually communicating? And is that tailoring that message. The right tailoring the message, yeah. That was a, a big turning point because at that point it was like, I was married, uh, I had responsibilities to, to, to spend money to go back to school was going to be, you know, kind of a big decision. I could have easily been like, oh, I'm not going to do this. That's kind of, sounds kind of risky, but. Well, for one, I'm glad you forged forward me too. Thank you. <laughs> Typically, I would ask about uh, what kind of link you feel exists between hobbies and careers, but that's what this whole damn show has been about. So, I, want to switch <laughs> well, I, could, I could connect it all to backpacking, to home improvement, to riding motorcycles. <laughs> we don't have the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe no, maybe another, don't. maybe a follow up episode. All right, <laughs> definitely some beers or something. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about values and goals. Most of us don't actively reflect on our values and goals very often. I mean, some yeah. people do, but. A lot of us don't. I've found that stepping through that exercise can be really valuable, particularly if a long period of time has gone by since you've done it or if you've gone through major life changes. Because a lot of time you'll find that you're not really spending your time anymore in a way that's aligned with those values. And that can be that hidden source of angst, of anxiety, of stress that you might be feeling inside, right? And if you can identify that, you can act on it. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I do this exercise especially if I have a new manager that's never managed before, but anyone who's trying to get into more learning about leadership, I'm like, well, first we got to talk about what's true for you. What are two or three truisms that no matter the situation is always true for you? And everyone's always really confused because again, they're like, I want to see the syllabus. <laughs> Do you provide like an example? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so one example for me is I don't, uh, I don't lie or I don't strive to not lie. Or, and, and, and that sounds obvious. No, no one should lie. It's, it's important for me to know that and, and be very specific about that, you know, especially in the workplace, because you can get put into, especially once you get into management roles and above where you become privy to information that it's not supposed to be, you know, public, whatever. So, you know, it's the example of this, knowing that that's true for me, that I have struggled with even kind of dancing around knowing something if, if I'm being asked directly about it, right? You know, if my manager comes to me and says, hey, we're about to make this organizational change, uh, but nobody can know about it. You can't say anything for two weeks, but you need to know about it now so you can start preparing. And I can say internally, I'm like, okay, I don't lie to people. So if someone asks me directly, then I will say this. If someone asks me directly, because people know that there's something going on, what would you like me to say? And they're like, okay, wow, yeah, that's a good point, right? Because not everyone does change management exactly right. And no one thinks through, you know, that, that type of stuff. But for me, it's helped me avoid those situations where someone comes and says, hey, is, is the department about to be split? Are we about to acquire this whatever? And instead of me being like, oh, either I got to be like, uh, and then I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't, you know, doesn't have a plan or, or whatever. Or I got to be like, nope, nope, nothing to worry about. Let's keep doing your job. Then the news comes out and they're like, so you, oh. you lose credibility and you kind of betrayed your own values. And exactly. And, and, that, and that's sort of, you know, a good example I give, because the point is you have to be able to go home every day and look yourself in the mirror and be cool with it. You find yourself, especially as you get into more leadership, you, you start finding yourself into things you could never predict, situations you never predict, and sometimes heated situations where you have to keep composure and, and all these things that you, you can't really look up in a, you know, a how-to checklist for being you know, a leader. Or, and if you fall back to those things, even if the outcome is negative at work, like, well, you're, you're not a team player, you're out of here. Cool, I can find another job, that's not pleasant, but at least I didn't lie and then whatever, or, or whatever it is, you, right? You got to live with yourself for the rest I of your life. My, yeah, exactly. And again, all that sounds obvious, but it's really helpful to know that and be confident to fall back to that when, when you're in all those situations. And so I've had people be like, well, I, I really like, it's really important for me to, to do it right the first time. Okay, great. What's your, like every superhero, that's your strength. What's the flip side of that? And, and so let's be aware of that. Let's not change it because we also want to take away the strength of that being that what's true for you. What, What's the flip side of that? How do we manage that? And so for me, lying is kind of the obvious thing, but I always want to be pushing something forward. I want to be for the betterment of the situation. So people, their experience is improving. If I'm not, if I'm just stuck in a, well, we're, we're just continuing to crank the same thing and it's really just returning shareholder value or whatever it is. It's like, oh, that's not that great. We can do these other things and return shareholder value, right? Like that's more interesting. Can I be pushing this forward? Can I see people progressing in their career? Can I see research or UX advancing? Uh, not what I want to be doing. And if I'm not, uh, then I got to look at what I, why is that not happening? What do I need to be doing to change that either here or, you know, wherever else I need to be. So honesty and really the, the betterment of your world. Yeah. I, I, it sounds, it, it sounds kind of lofty, but honestly, that's kind of what drives me, drives me to work anyway. You know, Jared Spool's background story and how he got into it is just 
you know, amazing. But, I'd love to have him on the podcast. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing is just like this, this simple thing. Of like We can make the world a little bit better for some people. And I, I love that idea that it, it is just in these sort of details. I, I'm not this, I'm not going to be an Elon Musk or anything like that. I'm, I'm more interested in those little details and how you make things better that way. Well, given that those are your values, do you have any specific goals, either short-term or long-term in mind, that are kind of aligned with those goals or with those values? Yeah, maybe, but I, I don't articulate it that way, I guess. Um, like I said, I, I've, I've always sort of been really driven by those values. And as soon as I feel those getting off, then I then I move on. So it's such a part of your, your internal structure, your methodology, your way of thinking that you don't really need to articulate it. It just it drives everything about you. I like the way you said that. I think it's time that I ask how you get all this stuff done. Do you have any particular tips or tricks, rituals or habits, any practices that influence your success at work or in your night job? Effective triaging. You know, you, you don't you don't ever want to get into where you are fighting fires. And so I spend a lot of time on infrastructure. And it's it's almost like a behavioral infrastructure, right? Not necessarily. I'm not a very good project manager. That's, that's one of my weaknesses. Actually, something I'm trying to improve on. But I will look at what are things that I need to rely on and how can I make those as simple as possible, right? So that as I'm going through my day, this random task only takes a minute instead of 30, right? Something simple as specific places where, where the vacuum's placed and, and the way the screwdrivers are laid out and the way the shop is set up in the garage so that, uh, oh no, the shades fell down, right? And this kind of takes some sort of interesting crafty way to, to redo the hardware uh, because the design is just kind of a flaw going with my 1899 house. Well, instead of that taking days as I try new things or whatever, if that can take five minutes, all right, then I just kind of, I know the drill, whatever. I got the appropriate screw somewhere. There you go. That's a really mundane example, but it, it compounds. If a bunch of those things happen a day, then your whole day shot. And like the three key things you really need to get done, you couldn't because you got to take care of that. And so as much as I can look at, and, and this is the way one of my favorite mentors has, has kind of said that he, he doesn't aim to tell people what to do. He aims to create an environment that sustains the right thing so that as things start to get out of line or whatever, or someone's not acting according to the mission or values, he doesn't have to say a word because the environment will bring it back in. There'll be other people be like, hey, that's not that's not how we're doing things. Sort of a self-correcting system. A self-correcting system. Absolutely. And I'm, I've always been really fascinated by that because there again, you can't predict things. And so the more the system is geared towards reacting, just the better off you're able to navigate unknowns that pop up that keep them from compounding. Right, I, I really, really spend a lot of time thinking about things that compound and how can I minimize that so that I can get all these things you know, done and have time for these things that I, I really enjoy. There's all sorts of things that can happen in live performance that goes wrong. Cable goes out, sound guy starts having issues. You know, one of the monitors is just buzzing. The, the bride's mother is way angry about something. Somebody just poured you know beer down you know, one of the monitors are, you know, there's, there's something, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And so the more you're able to sort of roll with those and not have them sort of derail, the better off you are. And all that comes back to having like this sort of foolproof system that you don't have to think about. Muscle memory. Yeah, exactly. You know, muscle memory. And that ends up working against you sometimes. Uh, I, I think that there's some times where, you know, Don Norman would have a field day with, with some of the, the ways that I will just completely forget an appointment or something for some really dumb reason was I didn't actually put it in this particular calendar or I didn't, you know, set a drumstick next to the door or these just odd little things that will do to sort of kind of maintain these things. As soon as something's out of the ordinary, you know, now that there's a, a, a safety patrol meeting, you know, for the kids that's on a night that doesn't usually happen, it'll come up and like I had that as the next Tuesday or, 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 or it didn't, you know, fit in with my sort of regular thing that I keep in that subconscious layer of the mind as a part of behavior and routine. Well, the, the inverse of your superpower here would be that the, the rare thing that should be a minor detail, like a, a safety patrol meeting on a certain night, can actually have a spinning way out of control yeah, Im impact true. because of the way that you have set up the pins. You're, you're, you're right. That is that is a flip side. Yeah. And you know, other people can't you know necessarily understand that. It's like, this was so simple. All you had to do is write this down. So we're nearly out of time. I want to zoom out a little bit and ask two questions, kind of turn it over to you. Since hindsight is twenty twenty, if you could go back in time, what would you change over the course of your careers, if you would change anything? It's interesting. I'm, I'll, and generally, I'm always of the opinion that you adapt to everything that happens, and it all shapes you in some sort of way that brings you to where you are. And so in that respect, there, there's nothing to... So I don't have any sort of major things. I was once taking bass lessons from Rusty Holloway, and he turned down 
he turned down a gig as the bass player for Stevie Wonder before Stevie Wonder was popular because it was on a it was on a bus with no uh, bathroom and air conditioning and he was like ah this doesn't sound very good I would have changed his life <laughs> maybe like you know anything major like that but it is interesting like I have things like what idiot goes to design school to try to start a paper about local music right that, that's dumb someone should have taught me out of that and no one did not my significant other not one of the professors if i had a kid that had that an idea i'd have a hard time being like yeah that sounds that sounds like a solid business plan. right <laughs> but no it was perfect and you know it worked out and that's why i say it, it's if it felt right if it felt like it was driving me to that next thing that was going to be improving something or, or doing something that felt right yeah I, ha I have decisions that seem like kind of well is that the best way to approach that but yeah nothing that i would redo or, or change i do think that sometimes i spend too long on situations there again i think that that's that sort of patience at that level helps to actually push things long term that's one thing i really liked about being in house is that you have an opportunity to do something and, and see it happen as opposed to an agency or consultancy where you can come in and pitch an idea for something hot and everyone gets excited about it and then you do this thing but then you leave and then it kind of falls yeah, apart. you never know how it lands yeah it's not actually delivering that sort of long-term value so so i really enjoy that aspect of things but at the same time yeah i mean there's there's did i stay at scripts too long yeah, there's times where it's like, well, you know, I've kind of done my thing here, but I'm not going to change just yet. I'm going to kind of see how this rides out, you know. Well, I've talked about this before, but I took a role in ad ops at Scripps. It was a move from design into a purely, you know, business implementation. And at the time, I second-guessed myself, and I continued to do that for years and years, thinking really? um, I made the wrong move. I, I did it just so I could join join them full-time. In hindsight, oh, because I realized, there was a contract. Because oh, there was a contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I joined the same time as you, about the same time you did, where we were coming on as, as full fledged designer developers. So everybody right. hand coded everything in addition to coming up with the, the visual designs. Yep. I moved from that into a management role on the ad sales side in, in ad operations. And for a while, I kind of kicked myself. Did I betray my design self, my design path right. by doing that? But ultimately, it proved to the good because it gave me the business insight, the process insight that has proved invaluable as I've moved back into user experience. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that 100%. I, I, yeah, I mean, remember when you were getting back into UX, it was almost like, yeah, I've, I've left this for too long. I kinda, I've got to reconnect with this this thing. Um, but I was like, I don't know. We've got a pretty good, well-rounded set of skills now. So I can see that. Well, you, you can never see your own self very clearly, right? Yeah. yeah it's clear that as other people see you. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. This has been a blast. I hope you've had a good time. Before we sign off, do you want to share how people can best find you, learn more about you? And if there's anything you want to share in terms of words of wisdom or causes that you want to make people aware of, now is the time. Yeah, so I love Twitter. I'll try to mix it up every once in a while. I've, I've got a passion for the people that rail on design thinking. It's been out, it's been gone long, you know, kind of come and gone long enough that that's kind of died down, but I always love mixing up on that stuff. So I do some, get involved with some UX stuff on, on Twitter a little bit. If you want to see videos of my cat uh, as I'm building up an 1899, doing, fixing up an 1899 house, it's on TikTok. If you search for Brian Garvey, you can find it. Yeah, anyone can always reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Causes, I'm not, um, active in a cause. Our one, I will say though, our one uh, charity for the band is Childhood Cancer. Anytime the Butterfly Fund comes around, anytime to to help that group. Our guitarist has a has a son who is diagnosed with a very rare form of a rare and very not survivable form of cancer when he was one years old and has survived and with, with a, a lot of help from Butterfly Fund among other people. So yeah, I don't I don't have any sort of destination to send you to other than them. But, and what about the band itself? Uh, the band itself uh, playing Friday night at Scruffy City Hall. I don't know if this is going to drop before then, but if yeah. not, where would they find you? Well, the coveralls.rock.com. You can always see what at least the next public gig is. Play about four or five public gigs a year and then um, various parties and weddings. All right. Well, I hope this episode finds somebody out there at just the right time in their lives. If you're thinking about switching jobs or want to kick that hobby into high gear, Maybe you want to straddle a dual track career, as we've seen it can be done. Speaking of listeners, do you find folks out there? The only thing I ask is that if you enjoyed this episode, if this talk about how we end up in our roles is interesting to you, please leave a review on your platform of choice and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Every bit of exposure helps find more listeners. Thanks so much, and until next time, stay focused on your why.